I think I learned from having some good managers and some bad managers. I worked in all sorts of jobs before I started this company. Man, I worked at grocery stores, restaurants, bars. I worked at a tattoo shop, mom and pop owned restaurants. I worked at like franchise corporate, like Outback Steakhouse and got to see how they ran it. And then I worked at GE, which was a huge company and had lots of layers of management. And I got to see what I liked and what I didn't like. Then I got to work at and run the marketing department of a private equity owned company. So I got to see how private equity works and how they impact a company and the changes that they make. And I kind of took my lessons from all of those different areas. The things that I really liked were people who gave me the freedom and flexibility to succeed within, you know, like giving me the guardrails and the end goal, but not necessarily prescribing how to get there. Welcome, I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the last episode, we talked to Andy Alsop about running a company with employee supremacy. Today, we continue to explore what it means to be an entrepreneur. Our guest is Jackie Hermes, founder and CEO of Axelity, an agency that helps SAS businesses scale. Jackie has not only built a successful business, she has also spent time reflecting on what it actually takes to do that. And she normally shares her insights in her podcast, The Art of Entrepreneurship. So it was pretty easy to get a great conversation going with her about the do's and don'ts about starting a new business. But before we get into the episode, As you may remember, I am giving out one free copy of The Long Game by Dory Clark and one free copy of From Startup to Grown Up by Alisa Cohn to my two favorite reviews from November. So Bruce Styler 13 and Ariton Querimi 5, send me an email to dino at al4ep.com. It's first come, first serve in terms of picking the book that you want and reach out to me, we'll get in touch and I'll get you a copy of the book. And now enjoy the episode. Jackie, it's great to have you here. Why don't we start, give our listeners a little bit of your story, your background and get them to know you. Ooh, sure. Okay. Where to start? I own an agency called Excelity. It is an agency that works with B2B software companies and helps them sometimes get to revenue and grow faster. I've been running it for eight years, actually, yeah, eight and a half, which is pretty crazy. Before that, I owned a vegan cookie company, which is a very different kind of business, that's for sure. Ran that for a couple of years, realized how incredibly difficult it is to scale a a food business and one where you're selling to consumers at five bucks a pop. It's definitely, it's just a different sale than the marketing agency is for sure. Outside of work, work life, I'm a mom. So I have three kids. Actually, you might see them. They're about to get off school. So they're going to be like banging on the door, acting crazy as all three of them do. I didn't get one quiet one. I don't know how that happened, but that's the brief overview. That's great. I'm interested in your journey to entrepreneurship. I know you mentioned you tried two or three paths. First of all, what led to the drive of being an entrepreneur? Have you always been interested? Tell me a little bit about that. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like, 
oh, I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur since the day I was born. And I always sold things. And I, I guess that was not my dream. Looking back, I can see that I always had a lot of those tendencies. Like I've always been really strong willed and I always wanted to do things a different way. And whatever the path was that people provided to me is like, you know, the opposite of what I was going to do. So I had those tendencies, but I did not dream of being an entrepreneur. It was actually my ex-husband, who is the dad of two of my babies, who still, I mean, we have a good relationship. He's remarried, I'm remarried, all that jazz. He's the one that turned me on to entrepreneurship. So he had always, he's like that person that had always dreamed of being an entrepreneur. And when I started learning about it, I was like, Hmm, it kind of seems like it could be a fit for me. So I left my job and thankfully had him kind of supporting me through the beginning of that. And off we went. But that's where the idea came from. I grew up in a family that I'm the first person in my family that went to college. And they all were very much like, you have to go to college to get ahead in life. And to make money, you have to get a really good career. You have to stay there. You have to climb the ladder education stability was what was kind of ingrained in me. And, you know, the entrepreneurial life is the opposite of stable. So I don't think everyone was super pumped when I decided to go that route. But thankfully, it has panned out for me. (laughs) That's great. And it's interesting you bring up your family because a lot of the times it takes a while to break away from the expectations that people have for you. Tell me a little bit about how that process worked for you when you realized that maybe it was okay if you were going to turn out what your parents or friends expected and and how you went about that? I don't know that I was really following their expectations through a lot of my life. Again, I was always kind of carving my own path. So I was surprised that they were surprised when I decided to do my own thing. But also, if my kids came to me when they were like, 23 years old and had a baby at home and we're like, I'm going to start a cookie company, I would probably be like, "Mm, is that a good call? You know, and so I think that they had, they were hesitant on my behalf. And I think that they were right to do so. And also, I was building it on the side, I was keeping my full time job, you know, so I did it in a safer way. But that's not to say that everyone was like super excited when I started. And then by the time I started the second company, the agency that I'm running right now, they were like, Oh, okay, you know, whatever. I don't know that quitting my full time job was again, the most exciting thing for my parents specifically, but they supported me through it. And I think they're really happy that I found a path that I'm passionate about. Yeah, and you talk a lot about it in your wonderful podcast, The Art of Entrepreneurship, where you're giving tidbits. So I don't want to give all the tidbits away because I want people to go and listen to it. But what are some of the key lessons that you learned along the way? Well, there's no way to give away all the tidbits. My brain is full of all the million mistakes I've made and lessons that I've learned. But I would say some of the main things that I've learned, one, I have always had a tendency to hire quickly to meet a need and then fire slow. And they say hire slow, fire fast. Well, that saying is very true. Who you hire, how you hire, those things are very important. Focusing on being a good leader and how you retain your people also very important. So those are all things that I've kind of learned over time. I think I had managed maybe two people before I started this company. So it's not like I had the playbook in front of me of like how to manage people. So that has been a big lesson. Another one is the need to focus constantly on sales. 
And when you are, especially a solopreneur or just getting started, if you're not comfortable in sales or that's not your background, you have to learn. Otherwise, it's very difficult to get a company off the ground. And often we have to sell before we really even have something to sell and start having those conversations. And that is, that's a huge lesson too. My company definitely started growing faster when I finally took the leap and hired a head of sales who, I mean, that's what he does all day, every day. And he's really dang good at it. Whereas I was more of a farmer and less of a hunter. So I like, I was working the relationships and I kept in touch with people, but I wasn't out there really selling like he does. So you said a lot of interesting things in this process, which is saying that you're a hunter, not a farmer, and then that you had not managed large group of people when you started the business. How was the process to learn what type of leader you wanted to be? And when did you start articulating like, okay, this is my leadership style? I still probably don't have it like written down, you know, but I think I learned from having some good managers and some bad managers and working in, I worked in all sorts of jobs before I started this company. And I started the business at 20, 26, 27, you know, so I had only been in the workforce for 10 years, but man, I worked at grocery stores, restaurants, bars. I worked at a tattoo shop, not the kind of management that I wanted to be for sure. I was kind of terrified of the owner of it. Um, I worked at like mom and pop owned restaurants. I worked at like franchise corporate, like Outback Steakhouse and got to see how they ran it. And then I worked at GE, which was a huge company and had lots of layers of management. And I got to see what I liked and what I didn't like. Then I got to work at and run the marketing department of a private equity owned company. So I got to see how private equity works and how they impact a company and the changes that they make and, you know, everything like that. So I kind of took my lessons from all of those different areas and thought about the bosses that I really didn't like working under. And the common threads were micromanaging, not setting clear expectations, not communicating, not working with me on my career path. I hated all of that. Now, the things that I really liked were people who gave me the freedom and flexibility to succeed within, you know, like giving me the guardrails and the end goal, but not necessarily prescribing how to get there. I've always liked that. Um, the people who kind of like let me in on the vision of what was coming next and let me participate in it. So I really just tried to learn from the people that I loved working for and create an environment where people love to work with and for the people that they do. As you are building your company and your own team, what are some of the key lessons that you bring in as, as you bring people to work under you to make sure that you're setting the right culture that you want for your company? All of my managers have come up under me. So actually, two of them came straight out of college and started working with me shortly after I started the company. And they've been with me since. One of them, actually, we worked side by side at SciWave. Then I became her boss. Then I left. I actually asked her to found the company with me. And she said no. And then she started working with me again. And now, so we've been working together for a long time. And so I have had this responsibility of turning these people into good leaders because they had never led before, you know, just like I hadn't. And I think taking, again, those common threads and then teaching them how to examine like the way that they show up every day and how they treat people and how to communicate in a way that people can 
actually hear you instead of just the way that you want to and how to manage not only your intentions in a situation, but the perception that people have and make sure that those things are aligned because that's very important. And I've learned that like one toxic attitude can poison the whole company and one micromanager can cause incredible amounts of turnover and strife within the company. And I mean, these are all, again, eight years of lessons. So I've been learning a lot over the t- over that time, but I think those are probably the main takeaways. And these are very good lessons. And as I said, people can hear the details of the lessons <laughs> in your podcast. If you think about what is true and authentic to you, how do you define authenticity? And then how do you define it for yourself? That is funny. I recorded another podcast today and they really wanted to talk a lot about authenticity too. And I think that everyone can be authentic if you are transparent. I think that is like the hugest piece for me, at least, is I know that I'm not being authentic if I'm not telling the whole story, if I'm only showing the good and not the bad. That's a big part of my content on LinkedIn. So I think you can... Like people will believe that you are genuine in your intentions and that you are an authentic person if you're just real and honest with them. And a lot of people are very scared to do that. And I too have previously been scared to do that in a lot of situations. But I think every year I get a little less afraid, you know, and as aging helps a lot. So I would say, yeah, transparent, transparent and honest. Since you mentioned there's been like situations that maybe have taught you a little bit of a lesson or like where you were not comfortable, is there an example that you would be comfortable to share? Yeah, for sure. Probably, let's see, trying to think how many years ago this was, maybe four or five years ago, my company was not doing well. And I was draining my personal savings to make payroll for my four or so employees. I was like transferring balances on different credit cards, trying to just move cash around so that I could put money into the company so that my employees wouldn't know what was going on. Now, I wasn't trying to hide it from them, but I was trying to make sure that they could continue to trust me and that they knew that they were going to get paid for their work because I don't want people to be in an environment where they don't know if their paycheck is coming or that feels really unstable. So I had good intentions, but it did not have the right effect. And I think learning about intentions and perception is something that every single leader can do and focus on. But after I hid from them, probably that we were struggling for like, probably almost a year. And by the time I finally told them, they were like, Oh, we knew something was going on. You've been acting so weird. We knew something was up. But, you know, no one wanted to press me on it. And it was like, why wasn't I just honest in the first place? I could have just told them what was going on. And they probably would have been so supportive. And of those employees, of those four employees, three of them are still with me right now through all of that. So, I mean, hard way to learn a lesson. And it took a long time in that situation. But since then, I'm just like, man, you know, here's how much money we've made this year. Here are our margins. This is where it compares to the goals. And we're rolling in it or we're broke, but I'm going to be honest either way now, like the full, the full truth. I think that is a really, really important thing. I've been a part of, you know, smaller companies where I was part of the senior management, but not a part of the ownership team. And I think that the lack of transparency across financials, if you're expected to commit it, because I think it's okay to be in a situation where 
you know, okay, things are tough right now, but at least I have full transparency on it. As long as they know that there's a plan, it's not like, oh, I'm going to sit on my hands and hope that we become profitable again. As long as they know that it's like, all right, projections say, because businesses become unprofitable and then get profitable again all the time, especially as you're growing, we're bootstrapped, we have no investment, and we're putting all of the money back into the company. So if we're like, okay, projections say in three months, we're going to be profitable again. There's really nothing to worry about as long as it doesn't show up on their paychecks or in my attitude. What is your vision for the business? What's your goal in terms of scale? And how do you define success? Well, I'm one of those people that never, you know, like I had I looked eight years ago when I started this thing and saw this company, I would have been like, wow, that's success. I remember working under a woman. She was like one of my first clients when we weren't only working with SaaS companies at the time. I was actually doing some marketing for her agency and her agency was a little bit smaller, probably about the same size as mine is right now. And I was like, oh my God, she's such a badass. Like She's so cool. She's made it. And now I'm here and I don't feel like I've made it at all. I feel like I've done just a little teeny tiny part of what I have left to do, you know? So I need to get better at like reflecting on the wins and setting those goals. We do set annual goals for how much we want to grow, but I don't see an end in sight here. I'm not planning to sell the company. I'm just planning to keep growing it and then potentially take on, I don't know, spinning out a SaaS product could be in our future. We've done so much of it. I think we know how to sell and market one. The world is an oyster right now. I don't really have plans outside of just continuing to grow this thing. That's great. Do you, do you have not as much in plans, but there's a really interesting conversation I, I find going on in some of the marketing industries with people like Will Reynolds from Sears Interactive, Rand Fishkin with his new startup, Spark Store, about looking at different measures of success than the ones that, you know, in the sort of market, marketing MarTech, it used to be building unicorns. I'm wondering, do you have a perspective on what you'd like to do? I would like to grow it and get it to a place where it's being largely managed without me. Because right now, I'm still very in day-to-day management of... I don't work with clients and I don't manage most of the team, but I still am very involved in like, okay, if we need to do resource planning or capacity planning or whatever it is, I'm in it. I would love to get to a place where I am not in the day-to-day and I can back out of that a little bit. And I think that only comes as we grow. Do I want to run a hundred million dollar agency? Not really. And I don't think we will get to that size, but I'd love to get us to eight, 10 more. Again, I I think everyone thinks that they have to have like this, you know, like really serious plan. Our like big goal is 30 by 30. So 30 by 2030, which is a freaking crazy goal, but we'll see. Maybe we can get there. Well, you got nine years to go. So (laughs) on a personal level, How do you define success for yourself? For me, if I feel good on on a daily basis, then I feel like I am successful. Like taking care of myself, sleeping enough, getting my workouts in, not feeling... I don't want to feel stressed. I've gone through so many periods where I feel stressed on a regular basis and I don't want to feel like that. And so if I'm like waking up and I'm happy and I'm going to bed and I feel calm and my kids are well taken care of and I'm spending time with them, great. I think, I think I'm living my best life right now, thankfully. But that said, I mean, I go through all these periods where it's like, 
this truck starts to get to you and winter is now coming. It's getting dark out at like 4 p.m. That gets to me too. So I don't know. I keep a really close tabs on my mental and physical health because I think that if those two are where I want them to be, then that is success to me. How important is that a part overall of the culture that you're setting within the company? I think it's important. And I get on some of my people about how they take care of themselves. Like my head of sales doesn't sleep enough. And whenever he's like really stressy, I'm like, have you been sleeping? Because I like, I see sometimes that he is able to take on more with a really good attitude and sometimes really little things get to him. And I think that's everyone, right? We're all like toddlers when we don't sleep enough. We're just like a puddle and you can't deal with anything when you're not taking care of yourself. So it definitely does integrate into the culture. I think I would like to look at all of my team members as whole people. So like we're not for work robots. There's really especially now we don't even report to an office anymore. There is absolutely no separation of work and your personal life. And if something really terrible is going on in your personal life, you're not going to show up like happy and bubbly at work. That's just not how it is. So we track capacity from our or with our team just on a, well, we have like a, you know, a very detailed system, but we ask everyone every single week, how are you feeling about your capacity? And it's a red, yellow, green system. Red is like, I'm overwhelmed, I'm over capacity. Yellow, I'm full, I'm good. Green is like, I'm great, I could take more work. And a lot of times, how a team member is feeling doesn't always align with how much work they have. You know, like it could be something else that's going on where they're not feeling well, or they want a vacation last week and they're really overwhelmed. Or I think half the time it's like a mental game as much as it is as you know, like showing up and doing physical work. So I try to incorporate that into the company. That is great. Do you do anything in terms, because a lot of the times in a service business, there's this perception of pressure that comes from the need to serve clients. And depending on the culture of the company, the real, the actual client need may be translated like three times multiplied once it's coming through. Do you do anything in terms of helping them manage clients' expectation and help me manage client expectation to support your team? Yeah, we have recently actually begun doing ongoing trainings with the team about it's like how to speak to clients, how to manage their expectations, how we're proactively managing timelines, um, how to speak very transparently with clients so we can understand what's really under their feedback. And it's just, I mean, it's an ongoing thing. So we're doing things like running NPS surveys. We're asking one question at the end of every single client meeting, because it's interesting that once a client feels pressure and they put pressure on the team and then the team, you know, whoever is talking with them puts pressure on the rest of the team. And then it suddenly has like gone through the entire account team, everyone that's working on it. And everyone's like, ah, you know, running around like a chicken with their head, heads cut off. So I think the team has gotten really good at challenging each other and asking like, okay, I have three items from this client on my plate, which is the highest priority? And which can we move to later this week? Or can we extend the deadline on? So I appreciate that they all have gotten really good at kind of pushing back on each other and really trying to understand each other instead of just like everything's not urgent. And I think that's one of the most important things you can, you can learn in a service company. 
I agree 100% with you. I'm curious, the culture and the environment of a company is given by the employees, but also by the clients. How do you think about which clients you want to take on and maybe clients that you may decide to pass on? I think I have a podcast and a LinkedIn article on this, and I've thought about it very, very thoroughly. There are a lot of red flags that we look for Mm -hmm. in the sales process. And I think those translate directly into how a client is going to work with you. I do not like aggressive negotiation. I think that's very Midwestern of me. But when it comes to services, the price is the price. And it's like, you're delivering a value. And when people are like, "Mm, you know, well, actually, this should be the price. I'm like, oh, you, you are not pricing this. I'm not going to negotiate or discount. I think discounting sucks, honestly, in in a services company. And so when people want to go too hard on that, I'm not about it. I have met lots of companies or like the stakeholders that will talk poorly about others, be it their last agency that they fired. And it's, you know, if they can say we fired this agency and it's because of X, Y, Z expectations and results. Great. That's totally fine. But if it's like personal digs at people, I do not like that. We had a prospect once that would only talk to me because he didn't like my head of sales, who I'm telling you, is like one of the most likable people on the planet. And I was like, okay, this guy's got to go, you know, because that is just, I don't, is he, is he treating power differently? I don't know what it is, but I'm so glad that we did not sign them. So I think there are a lot of signs that you can look for if you know what you should keep a pulse on. I agree with you. I want to cover one more thing. And there's an episode in your podcast that I really liked, which is when you talk about how to react about feedback and comments from external people and negative feedback. So I don't want you to give away the whole thing, but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's actually the entire Friday segment. So the podcast is basically like three categories. And I put one category out on Monday, one on Wednesday, one on Friday, the entire Friday category is about the things that people say to you and how to deal with them. Because when you are like, if you're climbing in your career, or you're starting and growing a company, people are gonna say random things to you all the time. And it It might be like direct digs at you, or it might be undermining you, or it might be a lack of belief or not understanding your vision. But it also can be little tiny nuanced things like backhanded compliments. And I mean, often when people say stuff like that, it's about them. It is their insecurities that are being projected onto you. It is their thoughts and ingrained beliefs and the things that they have learned over time that they're telling you what you should or should not do. And often, I don't think it's about you. And sometimes people do it out of fear too. They might be too scared to take an action themselves. They might be scared on your behalf, which is totally valid because entrepreneurs take a lot of risks and often do some pretty crazy things. But I think you have to take everything with a grain of salt and compare the things that people say to you to your belief system and try to pull out any little tiny nugget that you might be able to. But it's again, it's something you learn over time. It's getting crappy feedback from people saying terrible things to me, especially on LinkedIn right away, used to really take me out. Uh, And now I'm just like, block, because I've gotten used to it, unfortunately, or unfortunately. (laughs) That's great. So if somebody was either building an internal team or a new internal venture inside the company or starting their own 
company right now, what would be the like two or three most important things that you think they should be thinking about? Good question. If they're building a team or building a, if you're building a company, I think understanding how to structure it, if you're going to hire people is really important. We are implementing EOS right now, which is entrepreneurial operating system from the book traction. That is something that even if you don't, it's a very involved system. So like brand new companies do not need to implement it. But I did read it many years ago to get like the little nuggets and tidbits of what I could use as I was growing the company. So just understanding how to structure a company, how you make hiring decisions and who you hire and when that is all very important. That is 100% true. Anything else people should be thinking about? The point we already hit, which is selling. Sell when you think you don't need to sell. At all times, you should be selling. Even when you're full of or your capacity is full. It's like every single day is new and something new could happen every day. So I think keeping those sales conversations going is really, really important. Great. I think that was chock full of advice for our listeners. Let's move a little bit to the personal side. What is a passion that is not directly work-related? that is important to you and how has it informed your work? Yeah, good question. I was a foster parent for two years and I fostered three little girls. I adopted one of my kids from foster care. And actually my husband had adopted his daughter as well, which is one of the things we like immediately bonded over when we met. So now two, two of my three babies are adopted. That is something that I'm very passionate about. And I think that being a foster parent taught me that you have to have just a huge amount of empathy for people. And I have brought that into my work, especially God, during this pandemic, people are going through it. You know, we are all being tested in every way we could in our mental health and people who are parents who had their kids at home for like a year, I was completely tested in that way. And so I think people are going through so much stuff that we have to be so empathetic to them. And I really learned that when I was fostering kids that had been through terrible things and trying to like co-parent with their parents who also never really learned how to parent and work within a system that doesn't always work the way that you think it should. I think you learn to be, like I said, really empathetic and really flexible. That's great. This is my favorite question of the podcast. We all live in an air with big business cliche, jargon expression, which is one that drives you crazy, makes you want to rip your head out? Oh, anytime someone says the word synergy, I'm like, please, no, skip that one. Loop back, I think. I said that today and I was like, no, 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 no. There are some terms that people just say over and over and they say so much, they say them so much that they lose meaning. So I don't know that I have like a pet peeve, but some of them I hear and I'm like, we should retire that from your vocabulary, probably. <laughs> That's great. And then final question, I call it food for the soul or food for the body. So if, is there a particular either recipe or drink, or if you want to go to the soul side, a book, a movie, some music, a piece of art that really speaks to you? Well, I don't cook. So that one's... <laughs> well, it may be cooked by someone else. True, true. You know, I'm going to kind of go outside of those categories that you just gave me because I feed my soul by exercising. And I, it, I mean, it might sound 
I don't know, sounds weird, but like I got a Peloton during the pandemic, right when it started. So it was like last summer and it has changed so much for me. It changes, well, my body, but it's also changed my mindset and it makes me happier and it makes me able to show up in a better mood. And it, I mean, it has seriously just created so many benefits for me and I work out way more consistently than I ever have in my entire life right now. And it's such a good feeling to start seeing the results of what you're doing physically, but also know the work that you're doing for yourself mentally. So it definitely feeds my soul. Yeah. Well, you know, I completely agree with that. What's interesting to me, when I started exercising about 20 years ago, I started running and I set a goal of running and training and running for a marathon with the idea that, you know, I wasn't going to end up running a marathon, but at least I want to start running. And I ended up running two marathons. But what the training taught me is that if you just put the work in consistently, because marathon training, you know, you need to run a certain amount of miles every day and you can't not do it. And you never see the progress on the day that you're doing it. And it's just like five weeks later, like, oh, now I can run six miles. And I think that, you know, that's very similar to what you're experiencing with the bike, as you're saying. That is all of life. You never see the results right away. It takes way longer than you think. You have to be patient. You have to be consistent. You have to be resilient. I mean, the lesson that you just said, I think can apply to every single part of life. Right. And I learned it from training for a marathon. Jackie, it was great to have you here. It was great to finally meet you in person. And once again, I encourage everybody to go and listen to The Art of Entrepreneurship, your wonderful podcast, which has one great, great trait, which is all your episodes are 15 minutes long. So easy to digest and a lot of great information. I like to keep it short and sweet. And I have a very short attention span. So, <laughs> Well, it's great to meet you. Thanks again for being here. You too. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend who may enjoy it too and tell them to listen to it. If you really like the show, tell all your friends about it and post about it on social media. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you happen to be listening on one of those platforms that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please leave us a good review and a rating. If you like music, stick around. At the end of the credits, I'm going to share a song by Honest Mechanic, the duo project that features Susan Cattaneo and Paul Hansen from The Grown Up Noise. I chose an Honest Mechanic song this time rather than a solo Susan song because Honest Mechanic is nominated for a Boston Music Award. The winner will be announced on December 8th, so just a couple of days after the release of this episode, but the Boston Music Awards are one of those events where just making the cut of the final nominees is a huge win, so Congratulations to Honest Mechanic, and as I said, you can hear at the end of the episode why they got the nomination. If you're looking for Jackie, you can find her at her website at JackieHermes.com, spelled J-A-C-K-I-E-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And if you need some agency support or marketing support for an SAAS business, check out our agency, AccelityMarketing.com spelled A-C-C-E-L-I-T-Y and the word marketing. Make sure you also listen to our podcast that I mentioned quite a few times. It's called The Art of Entrepreneurship and you can find it on all major platforms. And you can also find her on LinkedIn and Twitter, The Jackie Hermes, 
her posts tend to be pretty insightful. She has some great little video posts on LinkedIn that I highly recommend. You can find me online at al4ep.com and you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. I am on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at al4edp. And on Facebook, you can look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with help from Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. Now, as promised, here's a song by Honest Mechanic. It's the opener from their album, and it is called Translate. Enjoy. So far from the start Did we stare too much at the stars? Talk to when you've gone. Oh.